In this recording, we're going to go through some reflections and ideas about the similarities and differences between two of the greatest gedolim in the 19th and 20th century, Rab Chaim Brisker and Rabbi Saul Salanter. Now, these two towering personalities were not just very great gedolim. There are many great gedolim, but both of them articulated a worldview which was very clear and consistent. And in the years after their passing, their movement became very popular. So Rabbi Saul Salanter founded what became known as the Musser movement. And Rab Chaim Brisker, of course, founded the Brisker method of analyzing Gemara. And both of these movements had a tremendous outsized impact on the yeshivas and on all subsequent generations of Jews up until our day. So we're going to look at the differing approaches that Rabbi Sral and Rab Chaim had. They both comment on a lot of philosophical issues, which are of great importance, as well as have a version of learning Gemara. So it's interesting to see where they agree and where they disagree. So we'll begin first with some comments about their own historical perspectives on each other. So in the making of a guttle from Reb Nassim Kamenetsky, who's a son of Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky, and he quotes a lot of traditions that his father and others recorded about these two great figures. In many ways, Reb Yisrael and Reb Chaim are the two main figures throughout the making of a guttle, as well as the altar of Slabodka. But he sees the story of the Eastern European yeshivas including Slabodka and Tells and all the very successful yeshivas, that the way they developed and reached their peak was through a crossbreeding of Musser and Brisk. So when they were able to combine those two traditions, which as we'll see, originally had been somewhat antagonistic, but once the yeshivas, particularly and beginning with Slabodka, were able to figure out how to bring together those two movements and combine the tradition of Rabbi Sral and Rab Chaim, so that was when they really took off. So in trying to give the context for how his father, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, developed into a great gadol and the yeshivas that influenced him, so Rab Chaim and Rabbi Yisrael have an outsized influence. The altar is sort of the one who brings together these two traditions in Slabodka, and he's a great pedagogue, a great educator, but Rabbi Yisrael and Rab Chaim articulate two worldviews that when they're combined are very powerful. So he quotes a lot of important traditions, including what the two of them potentially thought about each other. So they held each other in very high esteem. We'll begin with Rab Chaim's attitude towards Rabbi Saul Salanter. Now, this is an interesting thing, which nowadays we don't do very much, but in the making of a guttle on page 739, so he has an interesting discussion about how part of the culture of the Eastern European yeshivas was to rank gedolim. So this one was a first tier, this one was second tier, third tier. It's interesting because we don't hear it that much nowadays, but this was considered important to be able to rank who was really a top tier guttle and who was on a lower level. It's not to belittle people who are trying their hardest, but it's to really have a sense of who is head and shoulders above the crowd and who is maybe just a little bit ahead of the crowd, but their words don't carry the same weight as a top-tier guttle. And in many ways, we see the problems nowadays with having lost this culture. Now, as part of this, he quotes on page 1115 that Rab Chaim said that there were four gedolim in the generation preceding him who were quasi-rishonim. So they were almost on the level of rishonim. And the four were his father, the Beis HaLevi, Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik, Rabbi Yoshua Leib Diskin, the Maharil Diskin, who had been the Rav in Brisk before the Beis HaLevi, and then he moved to Eretz Yisrael, and he was always held in very high esteem by the Briskers, the Malbim, who wrote the commentary on the Tanakh, 
and Rabbi Saul Salanter. So Rabbi Saul was held by Rab Chaim in very high esteem as one of the top four gedolim of his generation, and even more than that, someone who attained a level almost like a Rishon. Now, he quotes a story there that Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik from YU, so Rab Chaim's grandson, Rab Moshe's son, was chatting with Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and they were both gedolim who had a strong historical interest. So they preserved a lot of traditions. And in Halachic Man, Rav Soloveitchik quotes a lot of important historical traditions to try to understand this facet of Rav Chaim that we'll discuss later. So Rav Soloveitchik commented to Rabbi Yaakov that he didn't understand why Rav Chaim included Rabbi Yisrael among these top gedolim. So this is part of the anti-Musr trend in Brisk that again we'll discuss further. So Rabbi Yaakov responded, it seems that Rav Chaim knew Rabbi Yisrael. In other words, Rav Chaim had a better understanding of Rabbi Yisrael who was a top-tier gadol, then Rav Salavechik understood him. And then he quotes that Rav David Salavechik, another grandson of Rav Chaim from the Brisker Rav, so he quoted that when he was a kid in Brisk, he heard that Rav Chaim had said that Rabbi Saul Salanter's mind had the sanctity of tefillin. And he quotes that there's a tradition that Rav Baruch Ber said the Rebbe, meaning Rav Chaim, trembled when he mentioned Rabbi Yisrael. So all of these traditions point that Rav Chaim had tremendous respect for Rabbi Yisrael's learning. These are not primarily about his piety and his midos and his musr, but specifically his learning. And Rab Chaim appreciated what a towering gaon he was. Now, the flip side is also true that Rabbi Yisrael held Rab Chaim in great esteem. I couldn't find the page, but I remember seeing in Making of a Guttle that Rabbi Yisrael said that the future of learning is going to be through Rab Chaim's method. And we'll see why that's surprising because Rabbi Yisrael has a totally different method. But Rabbi Yisrael was always worried about trying to figure out how Judaism could adapt to the changing world. So he experimented with secular studies, with allowing some small secular studies into the yeshivas. He had personal students who went to universities and got advanced degrees. He lived in Germany to try to understand the modern world better. He had ideas about translating the Gemara. He was worried about what was going on in America. So Rabbi Yisrael was a very far-thinking person, and he realized that things were going to change a lot in the modern world with new opportunities and openings for Jews in universities in America. Rabbi Saul saw that there was a lot of change coming and he was aware that there needed to be some response and he tried as best as he could to help the yeshivas adapt to what was coming. Unfortunately, the Holocaust happened and the whole adaptation happened much more quickly and much more drastically. But Rabbi Saul was very concerned and very aware of a lot of these changing trends. And as part of that, he seems to have believed that the brisker method would be the right way for a modern yeshiva bachar to be learning Gemara. And this was also the belief of Rav Salavechik, who was a prime brisker disciple, a grandson of Rab Chaim, and he was a Rosh Hashiva in America, and throughout his transcripts, collected in the Rav by Aaron Rakefet, so a few times he makes that same comment that without the brisker method, it would be impossible, he says, to teach Gemara to modern day people who are used to thinking in a certain way. So Rav Salavechik believed that Rab Chaim's method was a godsend, really to save the study of Gemara at a high level in a world that was changing, the way people took in information 
information and the way people studied. Now, Rab Salavechik had his own twist on the whole brisker method, so it's not clear that that's exactly what Rab Chaim was trying to do or that other great briskers would have agreed with that assessment, but it is interesting that there's a tradition that Rabbi Shal Salanter saw something similar to what Rav Salavechik saw 100 years later when he was actually a Rosh Hashiva in America. So there's some interesting overlap between Rab Chaim and Rabbi Yisrael, and this all makes sense because even though we're going to see that there's a lot of differences, but in their overall approaches, they both come from the same sources. They both come from the Eastern European world of the yeshivas, where the focus is on intensive learning, and they're both very connected to the worldview of the Vilna Gaon. Rab Chaim was a descendant of Rab Chaim of Valazhin, who was the main student of the Vilna Gaon and the founder of the Valazhin Yeshiva. And Rab Chaim was born, his father, the Beis Halevi, who was part of Rab Chaim Valazhiner's family, was a Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin for the first few years until he moved to Slutsk and then Brisk. So Rab Chaim very much comes from the world of Valazhin and the world of the Vilna Gaon, through his family, as well as the Valazhin Yeshiva. Rabbi Saul Salanter also very much comes from the worldview of the Vilna Gaon. His Rebbe was Rabbi Zundel Salanter, who was a prime student of Rabbi Chaim Balazhiner. So they're both very connected to the Vilna Gaon's legacy. Even though Rabbi Saul Salanter never studied in Valazhin Yeshiva or any Yeshiva, but he still very much comes from that same world. And the similarities go even further. Even though they both come from this same world, but they're both very creative. They have ideas and they're trying to put them into the system. So Rabbi Saul Salanter has a new idea that in addition to the traditional forms of learning and keeping halacha, the traditional things that the yeshivas are doing, there needs to be now a renewed focus on musr, on studying ethical books and increasing fear of heaven. And he wants to bring this system into the yeshivas and the Jewish communities. And Rabbi Chaim has a new creative way of deciphering Gemara and analyzing halacha and he wants to bring that into the yeshivas. So both of them are very much connected to the traditional ways of doing things, but also ready to add in their own creativity and their own ideas. So there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. Now that said, there is a very key difference, and that is that Rab Chaim is opposed to the whole Musr movement of Rabbi Saul Salanter. So he does not agree with Rabbi Saul's idea that in addition to learning Gemara and following Halacha, there needs to be also an ethical improvement program. Reb Chaim is adamant that purely learning Gemara and simply following Halacha, those things alone will bring a person to ethical perfection. So there is a very real debate between them, and we'll see that this debate not only touches on whether someone should study Musr, but it also touches on what the study of Torah means and how Torah is best studied. Because the whole issue of studying Musr ties in with Torah study, because obviously studying Musr takes time away from Torah study, and it's also an implicit recognition that studying Gemara and Halacha alone is not accomplishing full ethical perfection. So this is the controversial claim of Rabbi Saul Salanter, and Rab Chaim is one of his opponents. So this whole issue is going to touch also on the issue of how to study Gemara and Lumdis and the whole brisker analytic method, which Rabbi Saul Salanter, as we'll see, is an opponent of as well. 
So even though they hold each other in high regard, but they are opponents of each other's systems. So now there's an important story about when Reb Itzla Petterberger, who was the rabbi in St. Petersburg, and one of Reb Yisrael's three main disciples, and he did a lot, as did the other two, to spread the Musser movement. So Reb Itzla once came to Valozhin to try to introduce Musser into the yeshiva of Valozhin. They were having success in other yeshivas in the Kovno area, as well as other yeshivas, and they wanted to see if they could get the great citadel of Torah, Valozhin, which had been the chief and sometimes only yeshiva for a hundred years. So the Musser people wanted to see if they could bring Musser into Valozhin. So Reb Itzla Petterberger showed up in Valozhin to do so, and he had an important confrontation with Rab Chaim. So the details are recorded in Halachic Man by Rab Soloveitchik, and there's a nice discussion about the different versions of this story in the making of a Gadol on page 880. So he has an extensive detailed discussion of this, and he quotes the different sources of this story, and he tries to make sense of them, and what the timeline, when exactly the story happened, but I'm not going to get into the details. I want to stay focused on the broader issues that Rab Chaim and Rab Itzala, and by extension Rab Yisrael, were debating. So what was the debate between Brisk and Musser? So he tells that Rab Itzala came, and he said that when the Gemara says that in order to defeat the Yetzir Hara, one should study Torah, or remember the day of death, so it sounds like these are generic methods for defeating the Yetzir Hara. Studying Torah could be any Torah. Remembering the day of death is just a logical thing to remind someone to do the right thing. But according to the Musser movement, and Rabbi Sral had already said this, what it really refers to is studying Musser. It's not just generic Torah and generically remembering the day of death. That's not enough to combat the Yetzir Hara, according to Rabbi Yisrael, it has to really be an intensive study of Musser. So Rabbi Itzala reported this to Rabbi Chaim, and Rabbi Chaim responded that Musser is for those who are spiritually sick. But we in Valozhin are not spiritually sick, and so we don't need Musser. So this was Rabbi Chaim's attitude, that Musser is for those who are really struggling against their Yetzir Hara. They're sick, maybe they're non-observant, but your average good observant Jew does not need Musser, they only need Torah. Now the Sridei Eish quotes that later Rabbi Itzala responded to this, and he said, I don't think Musser is for the sick. I don't think it's medicine to heal those who are ill. I think it's oxygen to live by. So that was the debate back and forth. Now, interestingly, Rab Chaim used this similar argument to convince his son, Rab Moshe, not to study the Mora Nevuchim of the Rambam. There is good evidence that Rab Chaim himself was fairly well-versed in the Mora Nevuchim, even though he never mentions it and he doesn't discuss those types of philosophical ideas. He was very into the Rambam, but seemingly only the halachic parts of the Rambam, not the philosophical parts of the Rambam. But even so, there is historical evidence that Rab Chaim was fairly familiar Familiar with the Rambam's Mora Nevuchim, so his philosophical side as well. But when he saw his son Reb Moshe studying the Mora Nevuchim, he told him not to, and he used the same example that the Mora Nevuchim is only for those who are spiritually ill, for those who are perplexed, but not for someone who's already observant. So his son should not study it. And in fact, Reb Moshe never studied it, even as his own son, Rav Soloveitchik, was becoming a very highly educated philosopher. Reb Moshe always stayed true to his word, to his father, 
Rab Chaim, and he never studied the Moranavuchim. He never opened it again in his life. So that's an interesting anecdote. And again, it emphasizes that according to Rab Chaim, all the philosophy and all the Musar was not important. It was really halacha that was important. And it's more than that. According to Rab Chaim, one could develop a full philosophy and perspective of the world through studying only halacha. There was no need to study any other sources. So that's a fuller discussion for another time, but that's certainly part of why Rab Chaim felt that halacha on its own could provide everything a person needed, and you don't need any of these other texts in order to understand the philosophy and the worldview and the perspective and the ethics of Judaism. Now, Rabbi Yisrael explains his position in the Geris HaMusser, the letter of Musser, which is his statement of the point and the practice of Musser. And there he explains that there are two elements of a sin. One is a natural process, that when a person sins, they become more accustomed to sinning. So it's like any habit that develops the more one does something. So too, the more one does the wrong thing, the more of a habit it becomes. But in addition to that, there's also a spiritual component. So the more one sins, the more of an evil spiritual energy comes over them and the more mired they are in this sinfulness. So it becomes much harder to break free from. Now, the solution to that is studying Torah. But as Rabbi Yisrael explains, studying Torah also has these two components. So on the one hand, Torah combats the natural element of sin and it also combats the evil spiritual energy of sin. Now, the way Torah combats these two elements is because Torah also has these two elements to it. So on the one hand, it works naturally. The more one studies Torah, the more it becomes part of them and the more it changes them. But that has to be a specific study. So a person has to study the laws that are relevant to them. So if someone's spiritual challenge is that they steal money, they should study the financial laws. If their challenge is that they speak Lashon Hara, they should study the laws of Lashon Hara. Whatever it is that they are falling short in, that's the laws that they should study. And even when it comes to ethical issues as well, if someone is struggling with arrogance or jealousy, they should study the concepts and the Torah sources that address those issues. So that's the natural way that Torah works when a person studies the laws and the concepts that are relevant to their unique life struggles. So it changes them because the Torah goes into them and they're better able to withstand the challenges that they have. Rabbi Yisrael explains this all at much greater length and the process of how this works and how this fits into Musr. But this is the element that I want to stress in contrast to Rab Chaim's perspective. Now, Rabbi Yisrael writes that the Torah also has a second component, which is a spiritual energy. That the more one studies Torah, and this could be any Torah, it doesn't have to be specifically things that are practical and relevant to their spiritual struggles. Any study of Torah, even the most abstract theoretical piece of Torah, is going to bring a spiritual energy to the person and help them to become a better person. So Rabbi Yisrael does acknowledge that second component, which is central to Rab Chaim's worldview, but Rabbi Yisrael limits it. He says that the spiritual energy of Torah is much more powerful when a person is also accessing the natural element of Torah. So if a person is ignoring their ethical failings and only studying the abstract sections of Torah, it's much less powerful in terms of a spiritual energy than if they are accessing the natural component of Torah and working on themselves and growing ethically. So then the spiritual energy of the Torah is much more powerful. So that's the way Rabbi Yisrael sets this up. And again, that leads him to his conclusion that when the Gemara says that the antidote to the Yetzer Hara, to the evil inclination that wants us to sin, is the study of Torah, it's 
referring specifically to the study of Musr, things that are relevant to ethical perfection. Reb Chaim, though, has a different perspective on this, and he believes that any Torah, even the most abstract and impractical parts of Torah, contribute to a person's ethical growth. Now, it's interesting to note that there seems to be a similar debate between Rabbi Yisrael and Rab Chaim that's related to this debate. And that is one of Rabbi Yisrael's innovations is that he believed, at least theoretically, that there should be a practical rabbinical school for training rabbis to go out into the field and become community rabbis. So up until then, and for many years after, there was no real training for rabbis. They would study in yeshiva for many years, and then they would go out and become a community rabbi. Rabbi Yisrael felt that at least in theory it was hard to do because the maskilim, there were a lot of different political forces competing to start these rabbinical schools and the Russian government was involved because everyone wanted to control what the rabbis would think and by extension tell their communities. So there was a lot of politics going on around this. But Rabbi Yisrael thought that there would be some benefit to a from-run practical rabbinical school where young yeshiva boys could go and get training to become community rabbis. Now, Rab Chaim had no such ideas and Rab Chaim came very much from the classical traditional world where a rabbi studied in Valozhin Yeshiva or one of the great yeshivas for a number of years until he was a great Talmud Chacham and then he went out and got a job. So this is another aspect where Rabbi Yisrael had a more practical view of how Torah should be studied and taught and Rab Chaim had a more traditional view. Now, the making of a Gadol on page 480 discusses why Reb Chaim, for all his opposition to the Musr movement, did not sign and go public with this opposition. So there was a big letter of the anti-Musr rabbis called Lema'an Das, and Reb Chaim was one of the most prominent in that group, but he refused to sign. So he quotes that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said that Reb Chaim said that there were much bigger problems in the Jewish world with non-observance and people leaving halacha than the Musr movement. So he wasn't going to waste his time with an internal fight between the Musr and the anti-Musr forces when there's much bigger problems that the Rabbanim should be dealing with. He quotes a very cute line from the Chazon Ish, who was also anti-Musr, and he was also opposed to the learning method of Brisk, as we've seen in a number of the earlier recordings. So the Chazon Ish is a third world view, different from Rabbi Yisrael and different from Rab Chaim. So there's a very cute anecdote with the Chazon Ish that he surprised the altar of Slabodka by attending one of his Musr speeches in Minsk. So the altar of Slabodka asked the Chazon Ish why he had come to the Musr speech when he was opposed to Musr. So the Chazon Ish said, yes, it's true, I'm opposed to Musr, but I'm much more opposed to the opponents of Musr, which is a very cute line. There's also a letter from the Chazon Ish where he's describing his relationship with the Bali Musr, and he writes that he was together with the altar of Slabodka and the altar of Mir, which is an unusual way to title Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, who was the Mashkiach in Mir, he was not called the altar, but the Chazon Ish refers to Rabbi Rucham as the altar of Mir. And also he says with some of the greats of Nevardic. So the Chazonish had relationships with some of the Nevardic students like Chaim Grada, who became a novelist. And some of his characters were actually based on the Chazonish. But the Chazonish says that with all these Musr students from Slabodka and Nevardic and Mir, there was always boundless love between us and they were dedicated wholeheartedly to me. I never refrained from expressing sharp criticism and they rejoiced over it, as is the nature of the wise to rejoice more over a challenge than over a confirmation, and I too rejoiced over them, and especially. 
especially over the yeshivas, which combine inseparably Torah and fear of God. So again, we see that even those opposed to Musser, in many cases it was not personal, and the Bali Musser and those that opposed them all got together very well. So that was Rab Chaim's relationship with them as well. Now the making of a Gadol quotes two further traditions which emphasize this point. First, he says that his father, Rabbi Yaakov, explained another reason why Rab Chaim did not sign on the anti-Musser letter is because, as we mentioned, he held Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in such high esteem as one of the four quasi-Rishonim of the previous generation that he couldn't bring himself to sign against his movement. And he says that Rab Chaim's signature on that letter would have been deadly to the Slabodka Yeshiva because, first of all, a lot of students would have left and it was just trying to get off the ground at that point. Second, Second, the Rosh Yeshiva of Moshe Mordechai Epstein was a student of Rab Chaim, so he might have left. And finally, the altar of Slabodka would not have wanted to fight with the most popular Rosh Yeshiva of that time. So according to the making of a Gadol's conjecture, Rab Chaim's opposition to Slabodka would have been very harmful to the Yeshiva, but because he held back, so the Yeshiva was able to grow. And again, it was able to combine on some level the brisk and Musser traditions. The altar of Slabodka came from the Musser world, and Rab Moshe Mordechai Epstein Epstein, who became the Rosh Yeshiva, had been a student of Rab Chaim in Valozhin. Not that he studied exactly like Rab Chaim, but he had something of that flavor. And the Altar and Rabbi Moshe Mordechai were able to bring this together. Also, the Altar of Slabodka commented that Rab Chaim was a Balmusser, but didn't know it, which is a very cute line. Basically, he was saying that even though Rab Chaim was officially opposed to Musser, but he lived his life with the whole ideals of Musser. And this has to do with Rab Chaim's tremendous kindness, about which we have an earlier recording but Rab Chaim was known far and wide for his unbelievable legendary kindness. So that's what the Altar of Slabodka was saying, that even though formally Rab Chaim might be opposed to introducing Musser into the yeshivas, but he himself was in many ways the living embodiment of what the Musser movement was trying to create. So this is all a very interesting history, and there's a lot of different traditions about the attempts to establish Musser and all the fights over that. And again, the making of a Gadol has a lot of interesting material. He tells on page 933 that Rabbi Saul Salanter himself once approached the Nitziv and offered to become the Mashkiach in Valozhin. So he was trying to introduce Musser to the great Valozhin Yeshiva, and the Nitziv told him, you're welcome to come, but then I would have to leave. So that was the end of that. Also, there's some interesting material about the Navardic Yeshiva and Brisk. Navardic was the most extreme of the Musser Yeshivas, and the more mainstream Musser Yeshivas had their own problems with Navardic's extremism. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky reported a tradition that the altar of Navardic who gave his whole life, he was very passionate about spreading Musser, that he tried to convince Rab Chaim about the merits of Musser. And Rab Chaim listened to him, argued with him, and then he said exactly what my visitor wanted, I do not know, except that he was trying to fool me. So that's also an interesting tradition. Now, on the flip side, there is another tradition that the altar of Nevardic, who did not want a famous top-tier Rosh Yeshiva in his Yeshiva, because he didn't want another competing power base against Musser. In other words, he did not want there to be a role model in the yeshiva of someone that the boys would look up to who was a great towering Talmud Chacham who was not into Musser. He wanted all the role models to be Musser personalities. So there has to be a shear in a yeshiva. Someone has to teach Gemara. So the Altar of Nevardic actually spent six months in 
brisk trying to learn Rab Chaim's method so that he himself would be able to impart it to the boys. And I don't think it went all that well, but that's some of the interesting stuff that was floating around about this. Now, to return to the broader issues, how did Rab Chaim respond to Rabbi Yisrael's claims that Torah needs to work in a natural way and a person needs to study and focus on the things that they uniquely are trying to work on? So in the making of a Gadol on page 931, he has two possibilities. One is Rab Salavechik's and Halal man, and that is that Rab Chaim's opposition to Musser was that he felt that it was too depressing. So even though Rab Chaim undoubtedly had worked on himself, we're not saying that Rab Chaim never improved himself or fought with his Yetzir Hara. Of course he did. Every great Jew, every Guttel does. But Rab Chaim felt, like many people do, that that has to be done with a certain positivity and optimism and that Rabbi Yisrael and the early Musser movement was too negative and too depressing. It was a very mournful movement, mourning all their sins and regretting all the things they had done and fear of heaven and fear of the fires of Gehenim. So there was a lot of depressing concepts and ideas that Rabbi Yisrael was pushing in his movement. So that's why Rab Chaim was against it. Now, interestingly, Rab Salavechik and Halachic Man reports, and this is presumably part of the brisker tradition about all this, that that was really the early generations of the Musser movement, Rabbi Yisrael and his immediate students. But the altar of Slabodka, who was a third generation Bal Musser, and Rabbi Rucham Levavitz of Mir, who was a third turning into fourth generation Bal Musser, so they changed the nature of the movement, and it became a much more optimistic, happy movement. So Presumably, Rab Chaim would have been less opposed, if maybe not opposed at all, to the second version of the Musser movement, beginning with the altar of Slabodka's type. So that's one way, that seems to be the internal brisker tradition way of understanding this, as reported by Rav Salavechik. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky had a different explanation for this, which is that Rab Chaim opposed the Musser movement because he did not think that it was analytical. Rab Chaim, of course, believed in analyzing everything and studying everything intensely, and he felt that the Musser movement just studied things in a shallow way, but they did not analyze it, and that's why he was opposed to it. So Reb Nassim Kamenetsky defends his father's approach, and he reports that Reb Avram Yafin, who was a son-in-law of the altar of Nevardik, told Reb Chatzko Sarna, who was a student of the altar of Slabodka, that Reb Chaim said, you can't make a Birkas HaTorah, the blessing on the Torah, on studying Chovos HaLevavos, which is one of the classic Musser Svarim from the medieval period. So Reb Chaim held that it was not real Torah. Now, in Pnine Rabbeinu HaGriz, it says that Rab Chaim once saw his son, Reb Velvel, studying the Chovos Halavavos, and he said, study, study, Chovos Halavavos is the Shulchan Arach of Judaism. So Rab Chaim very much approved of studying the Chovos Halavavos. So why would he say that you can't make a bracha on studying Chovos Halavavos? So the solution, Rab Nassim Kamenetsky says, is it depends how you study it. If you're studying it the way the Brisker Rav studies it, with tremendous iun and analysis, so then it's the Shulchan Arach of Judaism, and it's great to study and Rab Chaim approved of it. But just reading through it without analyzing it, so Rab Chaim was opposed to that just like he was presumably opposed to studying anything, any halacha or gemara without thinking and delving deeply into it. And he quotes that Rab Chatzkel Abramsky reported that Rab Chaim studied Be'iun with depth even during Shiva, which is not prohibited. The halacha says that it's better to study in a surface way, not delving into it. But Rab Chaim didn't do that. And the reason 
reason was because he thought that studying something without analysis and without delving into it is not studying at all. Now, it's interesting to note that Rab Chaim's friend and colleague, the Rugachover, has a similar story told about him that he also violated the halachas of studying Torah during Shiva because he couldn't stop himself. It would be too much. So they both relied on this sort of leniency that the way they studied, they were not able to put it on pause during Shiva. Either way, the point of the story is that according to Rab Chaim, studying something without analysis and without delving deeply into it is totally useless. So that's the Kamenetsky tradition why Rab Chaim opposed the Musser movement. Now, Reb Nassim Kamenetsky argues against the Soloveitchik family explanation for Rab Chaim's opposition to Musser, that he felt it was too depressing because Rab Soloveitchik himself in Halachic Man reports that Rab Chaim had a certain moroseness and sadness to his personality, that he dwelled and thought a lot about death, and that's the explanation for why such a large percentage, the largest section of Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi is about the laws of Tomas Meis, the laws of the impurity of a dead body, because Rab Chaim would study those laws to alleviate his depression about sadness. So Rab Chaim also dwelled a lot on the day of death, the same as Rabbi Yisrael did. Rabbi Yisrael keeps revisiting this theme that it's shocking that people know intellectually they're going to die and they're going to be judged in the next world, and yet they totally ignore it. They just keep living their lives as if there's no end to all the fun and the partying and the whole goal is to just amass more things and they don't pay any attention to the fact that they're going to die. So there is a real similarity between Reb Chaim and Reb Yisrael in their focus on the day of death. And he quotes an amazing passage from Reb Meir Berlin, who was a son of the Nitziv. So he was a relative of Reb Chaim. In his memoirs, he says that when Reb Chaim switched from being a Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin to being a Rav in Brisk, so his personality went through a change. Rab Chaim the Rosh Hashiva was always happy, spirited, jocular, and entertaining on the highest level. Rab Chaim the Rav was worried, withdrawn, more inhibited. Knowing Rab Chaim from Valazhin and seeing him for the first time in Brisk was difficult to bear. One sought and searched for the good old days. So that's a very interesting tradition about Rab Chaim's change of personality. So according to Rab Nassan Kamenetsky, it could be that Rab Chaim in Valazhin was opposed to Musser because it was too depressing and he was a very cheerful person, but it wouldn't explain why he remained opposed to it later on in Brisk. So that's the Kamenetsky family arguments against the Soloveitchik version. Now there is a problem with the Kamenetsky explanation of this because it's not true that Rabbi Yisrael's Musser was non-analytic. In fact, Rabbi Yisrael's writings in Or Yisrael, which is a collection of his letters about Musser, are very analytic, which is ironic because Rabbi Yisrael himself, as we'll get to in a few moments, opposed the analytic method of learning of Rab Chaim. So even though when it came to studying Gemara and Halacha, Rabbi Yisrael did not study in an analytic way, but the time when he did apply analysis was to the study of Musser. In his writings, he's constantly differentiating between two different aspects of the human being and dividing different components and different levels of what needs to be worked on and what people are unaware of. So Rabbi Yisrael almost applies like a proto-Rab Chaim method of analysis to the study of a human being and the human psyche. So even though it's true that Rabbi Yisrael did not study texts the way that Rab Chaim did, but he did apply the analytic method to the study of a human being and human emotions and human psychology, so he did have an analytic method. So it's also difficult to say that Rab Chaim was opposed to Musser because he felt it was unanalytic when there seems to have been a strain of analysis even in the founding at the beginning of the Musser movement in Rabbi Yisrael's writings. 
So this was some of the back and forth between these two towering figures in Eastern European Jewish life, Rabbi Yisrael and Rab Chaim. Both of them, again, came largely from the same worldview of the Vilna Gaon. They were both very creative and added to it, but their creativity sometimes clashed. Now, it's worth noting, just to finish up this segment, that at the end of all this debate, both of their ideas became totally accepted and integral to the yeshivas. The anti-Musr forces calmed down very much, and in the end, most, if not all, of the major yeshivas in Europe had a mashkiach, which was a Musr personality. Now, the Musr movement had also changed, as we mentioned. So the Musr of the 20th century was different than in the 19th century, and that's why many of the yeshivas were able to include a mashkiach. And even the yeshivas that were run by Rab Chaim's students, like Rab Baruch Ber and Rab Zalman Meltzer, people who had been against Musr, at the end of the day, they did accept a mashkiach, and they introduced some lighter version of Musr into their yeshivas. Rab Chaim Ozer commented between the wars that any yeshiva that doesn't have a mashkiach is a borber shusarabim. It's like a pit waiting to cause damage because without a mashkiach in those times, they would lose a lot of the boys to socialism and all sorts of other things. So that was Rab Chaim Ozer's assessment. Likewise, the opposition to brisk pretty much totally disappeared and most of the major yeshivas again incorporated some brisker analysis in their learning, maybe not exactly Rab Chaim's version and not even a full-fledged brisker analytic method, but still most of the great Rosh Yeshiva and Magid Shir were influenced in some way by the brisker method and they incorporated some version of it in there. So that was the end of this whole debate that raged in Europe, that in the end both of the systems modified and calmed down a little and were able to be incorporated in all the yeshivas. Now, so far we've gone through Reb Chaim's opposition to Reb Yisrael's Musr movement, but the flip side was also true. Reb Yisrael opposed Reb Chaim's analytic method. So in the last few minutes of this recording, we'll look at what Reb Yisrael opposed about the brisker system of analyzing. Now, Reb Chaim's method, we know, is to take the halacha and to clarify the root conceptual basis of this halacha, and through that to divide between seemingly similar concepts and answer the questions and explain the whole concept at hand. Reb Yisrael has the total opposite approach, and the few lectures that we have of his that have been published follow the method of pilpul, which goes the other way. Instead of dividing between halachic concepts, pilpul combines concepts that actually, on a conceptual level, might not be related. So pilpul always looks to connect different halachic ideas and halachas, even if they could be conceptually differentiated and distinguished from each other, but pilpul likes to build them all together and throw around all sorts of sources. That's just the method of pilpul. So both pilpul and brisk are on extremes. There's the standard mainstream way of studying halacha, which is to take each halacha at face value and try to understand it. Pilpul tries to combine halachas even if they're only connected by a very loose thread, because that's the method of Pilpul to go through a lot of sources and throw them around and compare them with each other and create these whole large edifices of different halachas that are all seesawing and depending on each other. It's like a convoluted puzzle or maze. So that's the way Pilpul does it. So it combines things that maybe are conceptually only tenuously connected. And Rab Chaim is on the other extreme that he differentiates even very subtle conceptual distinctions even within the same halachic concept. So Rab Chaim is always seeking to understand the basis behind or underneath the halacha in order to understand it fully and differentiate it from a seemingly related halacha which actually has a slightly different conceptual basis. So 
Reb Yisrael and Reb Chaim are on opposite poles. Now, Reb Yisrael's learning method was very popular a couple hundred years ago, around the time of the Ramah, the Ramah's teachers, and that era, that generation, was very into the Pilpul method. And then it started to become less popular, and in the hundred or two hundred years prior to Reb Chaim, already there was a movement towards a more analytic method. Now, Reb Chaim took it to new levels, but already in Sfarim like the Tzos, the Nesivis, Reb Kiva Eger, certainly the Vilna Gaon was very opposed to Pilpul. So Reb Yisrael was not a man of his times. He was actually a man of the two or three hundred years before his times. So in going back to the Pilpul method, Reb Yisrael was returning to a method which had fallen out of favor already in his times. And Rabbi Yisrael explains why he's in favor of Pilpul. In fact, he sees Pilpul as the best approach to learning from a Musr perspective. So in Simen Chavtes of his Sefer, Or Yisrael, he writes, There is something that the wise men of Musr distanced from the Jews, which is Pilpul. I think, says Rabbi Yisrael, that it's the opposite, that Pilpul is the preferred way to learn according to the Musr perspective. Now, there's two reasons that Rabbi Yisrael is in favor of Pilpul. The first is because he thinks that it sharpens the mind, and one of the prerequisites to becoming a great Musr personality is having a sharp mind and being able to think analytically and process all sorts of different factors in order to also be able to make Musr an ethical and spiritual spiritual decisions. So a person will not be able to properly analyze their Musser life unless they've perfected their brain and their logical abilities through the study of Pilpul. But the second reason that Rabbi Yisrael gives is very fascinating. It's also autobiographical. He writes, I learned the value of Pilpul through personal experience. When I was younger and I was studying Musr and I was totally engrossed in the study of Musr. And here he has a little footnote once he's talking about his youth studying Musr. So he refers to his Rebbe, Reb Zundel Salant. He says, who's now living in Yerushalayim, and I haven't even reached the level of his shoes. Rabbi Yisrael praises Reb Zundel Salant to the heavens that literally his mind was in heavenly things even as he was making a living. So Reb Zundel did not take a rabbinical position. He was not supported through the study of Torah. He worked to support himself and his family. But all his thinking was always about Torah and spirituality. Everything that he studied was always to know what to do practically so Reb Zundel comes straight from the school of the Vilna Gaon. He does not study Pilpul. He studies the Gemara, the Beis Yosef, all of the great poskim to know the practical halacha and especially the Bir HaGra, the comments of the Gra on halacha. So Reb Zundel was always trying to understand how to apply the halacha to his own life. So even when he was working, he was totally engrossed in figuring out the practical application of halacha and bettering himself. And not only when it came to Halacha, but Kol Limudo Betanach, Gemara Midrashim Zohar, even when he studied ethical books, the whole point was to better himself and grow as a human being and know how to live as a better Jew. So all of Reb Zundel's studying was always focused towards the practical and the growth. And Rabbi Yisrael concludes, I wrote a little bit about 
about this great man, or Olam Lefi Hasharasi, who is the light of the world, as far as I can tell, and he wishes him well. So Rabbi Yisrael praises Reb Zundel precisely because everything he studies is along the lines of the Vilna Gaon in order to apply practically and to better himself. Not only halacha, but even philosophical and hashkafic books is all about bettering himself. But that said, Rabbi Yisrael is now going to explain why that does not work for him and why he thinks that system is not great for the average person. So again, Rabbi Yisrael is younger, he's studying under Rabbi Zundel Salant, and he decides to start learning halacha the way his Rebbe does without pilpul, just in order to understand the practical halacha. Gamarti bedati lakuf yitzri. I decided to control my yetzer. Asher hishtokeka laharos pilpuli neged bnei gili. The yetzer hara wanted Rabbi Yisrael to show off how brilliant he is, that he can come up with all these great, unbelievable constructs in the Gemara. So Rabbi Yisrael is a young man, he's very smart, and the Yetzir Hara wants him to continue doing pilpul in order to show off what a genius he is. So Rabbi Yisrael is studying Musr, and he decides that he's not going to do that anymore, he's going to abandon pilpul. Lazov legamre davar ha pilpul v'rak el ha-emes yihi So from now on, he's only going to search for the truth, he is no longer going to just throw things around in a quasi-truthful way, in this pilpul way that doesn't really delve into it, but just creates these huge constructs and frameworks. Now he's only going to search for the truth. Nar ha'yisi makom ha'emes lo yadati. Says Rabbi Yisrael, I was young and I knew nothing about the truth. Ki mimeni ki mizrach mimarav. It was very far from me, like east from west. So Rabbi Yisrael in his older years reflects that when he was younger, he really didn't know what he was doing. He still had a lot more to study. So he decided to study in a very short, simple way to understand the truth. So this is a key part of what's going to go on in this story. According to Rabbi Yisrael, the simple way of studying was more truthful. Once I abandoned Pilpul, I realized deep inside of me that the desire to show off my intellect was totally overwhelming my desire to search for the truth. So every person has a certain amount of creativity in them and a desire to know the truth and those conflict because creativity involves experimenting with ideas that turn out not to be true, whereas the truth is the truth. So says Rabbi Yisrael, he discerned this conflict internally within himself that on the one hand, he needed to let out some of those creative ideas, but he was holding them in and he was limiting himself in order to pursue what he thought was the truth. So his desire for creativity and to explore ideas was totally negating his search for the truth and it was making him biased that instead of searching for the truth, he was just looking for ways to justify what it was that he wanted to think. So he was now warping things and calling them the truth in order to allow himself to experiment with ideas. So now, says Rabbi Yisrael, he realized that he has to abandon this method. He said it's better to go back to Pilpul, even if it's less truthful, but because it's 
it's more truthful on a broader level, on a Musser level, because it allows playing with ideas so that a person can actually pursue the truth. And he says a very interesting explanation. Chazal say sometimes that someone said something, that a rabbi would say something in order to sharpen his students, even though it wasn't true. So that's very perplexing. Why would they say something that's not true just to sharpen the students with something that's false? Says Rabbi Yisrael, this is the explanation of it. They understood that their students need to get out some creativity and experiment with ideas in order to be more aware of the truth. This would free me from the Yetzer. So by allowing room for Pilpul, Rabbi Yisrael says he would be able to actually pursue the truth. And Rabbi Yisrael concludes the this became so important and central an idea for me that Rabbi Yisrael says, I don't believe, if not the greatest people, the Yechidei Sgula, that anyone else, that a person can come to proper understanding and a proper perspective, unless they pursue the method of Pilpul. So this is a very profound passage, and we don't have a lot of time to go through the details of it, and our focus is not on Rabbi Yisrael's concept of truth, which is a very layered, complex, and fascinating, and very important insight, but we're focusing on the debate with Rab Chaim. So according to Rabbi Yisrael, the problem with Rab Chaim's method of analysis is not internal to the halacha. It could be that Rab Chaim is totally correct in the way he's understanding halacha. But making the claim that this analysis arrives at the truth is very dangerous because it stifles creativity, and a person needs to be able to experiment with things that are not totally true in order to arrive at the truth. So Rabbi Yisrael has a very profound insight that no human being can fully know the truth. Certainly not when it comes to ourselves and all our biases and all the selective hearing and selective understanding we do of things that we want to hear and understand. So a person can't ever fully get over all of that. But there is a method to lessen it, which is to allow the brain to roam free and to come up with all sorts of ideas outside of the area of personal growth and that allows a person to slowly hone in more and more on where they should be heading on a personal level. So according to Rabbi Yisrael, stifling pilpul and intellectual creativity can backfire on the other end. Now Rab Chaim obviously disagrees with this because the whole assumption of Rab Chaim is that there's a search for truth through this new analytic method which is able to arrive at a fuller understanding of the halacha. Now even Rab Chaim would admit that obviously at times the analysis could be wrong, there could be a mistake, but the purpose is the search for truth. And when you read through a piece of Rab Chaim, you see and feel this tremendous search for truth, this sort of overwhelming element of truth in it. Now there's a lot to say about Rab Chaim's own definition of truth, because a lot of times Rab Chaim will say something that is not proved, so he does not make an effort to prove this point, but since it fits into the overall framework, so he accepts it. So Rab Chaim's definition of truth is almost like a backward-looking definition that once we arrive at the end of the whole piece, whatever fits into that framework and makes sense of the data at hand, so it makes sense of the Rambam and the Gemara and the different sources, that is considered truth. 
So there's a lot to say about that definition, but it seems clear that that is the goal of Rab Chaim's pieces. Rabbi Yisrael, though, reminds us of an important counter to that, which is that when a person thinks they've arrived at the truth, that can be a very dangerous proposition because a person can then settle in and think that they don't have to search anymore, that they've now figured out the truth and they're no longer open to seeing the different ways that they're fooling themselves. So that's Rabbi Yisrael's Musser-based critique of the analytic method. So this is, again, a very fascinating debate back and forth about how properly to study halacha and how that fits in with the overall life of Musser and growth of a Jew. And the autobiographical story from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter about how he experimented with the study method of the Vilna Gaon and then went in a different direction is just a gem for anyone that's trying to think about these themes. So we have in these two towering gedolim, Rabbi Saul Salanter and Rabbi Chaim Brisker, two different perspectives and two different methods. Both of them at the end of the day are promoting the same thing, intensive Torah study and chesed and spiritual growth. The question though is how to get there. And they each articulate a very coherent, consistent and eloquent model of how to serve Hashem, how to grow as a Jew using the texts of the Torah and the life of Torah. But there are some serious differences between them that give all of us a lot to think about.